We're going to be in Luke chapter 2. In fact, we're going to look at a portion of scripture that Angel just read to us. I need a little help here. The series we just finished that we call Thanksgiving Songs was such a hit, I've decided to follow up with a series called Christmas Songs. I know, creative, right? The difference is, though, while there were no Thanksgiving songs, there's a million Christmas songs. But, but I've got a couple of problems as I was thinking about this. First of all, a lot of the songs that we call Christmas songs have nothing whatsoever to do with Christmas. Have you thought about that? Even some of the most traditional and some of the most um, popular Christmas songs really have nothing to do with the holiday. For example, here's a little sound clip of one. And yet this is probably, we even call this a Christmas carol. Another thing I discovered, there's a difference in Christmas carols and Christmas songs. Christmas carols have a religious connotation. They point to the incarnation. Dashing through the snow on a one-horse open sleigh. How many have been caroling? Been Christmas caroling before? We always did that. Those of us in youth ministry did that. And I've had some terrible life-altering experiences. <laughs> I remember one time in, in Bethany, I thought we were up there, I thought it'd be a cool idea to do kind of an urban hayride. So I got a big stock trailer and stacked hay bales in there and locked, literally locked the kids in because I was afraid they were going to get out. We got some strange looks on that one too. Pulled up singing Christmas carols out of a stock trailer. But there are a lot of other Christmas songs that have nothing to do with Christmas. Here's one of my favorites. And I, this is a terrible video, but I just love this arrangement so much. I wanted you to enjoy it with me. This is one of my all-time favorite Not a Christmas song, a winter song. Like, like Frosty the Snowman, Baby It's Cold Outside, Let It Snow, Let It Snow. We call those Christmas songs, but they're not. So I didn't mean to ruin the holiday for you. <laughs> but what I want you to know is there are some great Christmas songs with great theological depth. And we're going to look at a couple over these next couple weeks through the lens of Scripture. The one we're looking at today is obviously Joy to the World and the lyrics you had there before you. Let me kind of set the biblical context for you. There's a group of shepherds that are bedding their flock down. Now, in shepherds, uh, in that culture, was the lowest, most kind of entry-level, unskilled labor there was. Like today's equivalent would be bag boy at the supermarket, you know, minimum wage or the guy that drives your car at the car wash or the dishwasher bus boy at the diner. I mean, unskilled entry level stuff. Now, the Bible says that the angels appeared to these shepherds and it, it raises a question. If God the Father was going to announce the incarnation, which apparently he did, why wouldn't he send the angels to Caesar Augustus in Rome? If God wanted the world to know that Jesus was born, why not send the angels to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish governing body? I would have loved that one. But he didn't. He sent the angels to shepherds. This is Luke 2, verse 8. Josh, you're going to have to help me there, I guess. The Bible says there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. 
an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Messiah, the Lord. Now, there's a lot of terms connected with the Christmas story that carry a great significance, like angels and like peace and like light. But maybe the most significance of all is joy. And the angel said, Jesus is coming to cause joy. And I'm kind of wondering about that. Because we know that Jesus came to cause hope. And Jesus came to cause redemption. And Jesus came to cause deliverance. But why would God want to inspire great joy? Why is joy such an important part of the Christmas story? I've got five scriptural reasons. Number one, God is the most joyful being in the universe. I suspect most of us would not describe God as joyful, but the Bible does. For example, what is the source of our strength? According to Nehemiah 8, the joy of the Lord is our strength, right? Look at how Paul describes the kingdom of God. Not a matter of what we eat or drink, but of living a life of goodness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Joy is a fundamental element of God's nature, the most joyful being in the universe. And that simply tells us that God wants us to be joyful as well. Now we get a little confused here. Because there's been a popular doctrine that sprung up over the last couple of decades that says God wants us to be blessed. And we take that to mean that God wants us to be happy. And we take that to mean that God doesn't want us to be sick or God wasn't, doesn't want us to suffer. And that's just not correct. It's not biblical. God wants his people to be joyful. And that's very different than being happy. As Jesus was ending... Uh, the end of his earthly ministry, the disciples quizzed him. We see it in Matthew chapter 24. They said, Jesus, what is the end time going to look like? And Jesus in Matthew 24 and 25 tells him. But he says something very interesting. He says, when you enter kingdom, this is what the Father will say to you, Matthew 25, 21. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful to a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's joy. Now, we know that joy is eternal. We know that when we get to heaven, we will live in joy all the time. But we need to understand that joy is not withheld until we get to heaven. Joy is part and parcel of being in the kingdom of God. How do I know? Number one, joy is a byproduct of being in relationship with God. Psalm 1611 says this, You make known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence. Also, we know that joy is a fruit of the Spirit. In other words, joy is installed when we're born again and then grows our entire lives as we walk with the Spirit. Now, a lot of people think that we acquire joy. 
or catch joy like a virus. Other people believe that joy is genetic. Some people are just predisposed to joy, but that's not the truth. Joy is a choice that we make day by day and moment by moment. Now, don't mistake me. God's plan is that we choose joy. Philippians 4.4 says this, Rejoice in the Lord when? Always. Always. In fact, I'll say it again. Rejoice. I love this, this word joy in the Greek is Cairo, and I love the English translation. It means gentle, calm. You see, we think of joy as something exuberant or, or effervescent. No, um, uh, it's, it is a um, gentle, calm. A lot of people are saying, um, you know, I'm trying my hardest, but it's just not working. Well, that brings me to the next reason why joy is important to God. It makes life better. All right, here's a big blanket statement. Let me just throw this out there. I believe that most of us struggle because we conflate joy with happiness, but they're not the same. Where joy is given by God, happiness is totally dependent on circumstances. In other words, if I'm flush, I'm happy. If my circumstances are good, I'm happy. That's not joy. Permit me a little small rant here for a second, if I could, please. I've seen the world change so drastically in the last couple of generations. Now, our parents struggled through the Great Depression and World War II, and so they determined, they resolved that life would be better for their children. So they told us, the baby boomers, on the advice of Dr. Spock, that we could do anything we wanted. We could do whatever we chose to do. Well, the truth is some can and some can't. Some of us could do whatever we wanted and some of us couldn't. Consequently, we, we messed up our kids. The generation before mine frowned on divorce. The generation after mine frowned on marriage. Do you know that now 75% of all couples that get married live together first? My generation questioned everything. We followed our hearts, which was a terrible mistake. We believed that somehow freedom would find what we needed. But then, because we didn't find it, we messed up our kids as well. Now Generation Z, which is my grandchildren's generation, is a confused mess. They are children of divorce. 27% of all middle schoolers are on prescription medication. They're obsessed with social media. And what do you think comes out of that? Generation Z has um, half have no religious affiliation whatsoever. And 7% of those kids attend church weekly. Did you hear me? 7%. And yet we're trying to force feed them happiness when Jesus came to bring joy. It looks to me like people in 2022 are terminally miserable. And I think the reason is because they're frantically pursuing something that doesn't exist. Madison Avenue has worked very hard and done a great job, frankly, of selling happiness. If you just wear these jeans, if you'll just eat this or drink this, then you'll get noticed by the right people. Then you'll be happy. Well, it doesn't work. 
The happiness they're selling us is temporary because you buy their product or you ingest their material. You may be feeling good for a minute, but then what? After that, then what? And the evidence to me is that depression is epidemic in our culture. More people in therapy than ever before. And Dr. Rogers said, praise the Lord. Also, I've noticed that human sexuality has come out of the closet. Have you noticed? It's everywhere. And they use it. They use human sexuality to sell us stuff. And please don't misunderstand. Sex was created by God. And in its context, biblical context, sex is perfect and beautiful and amazing. But people that use human sexuality to find happiness only find emptiness. And if you don't believe me, ask someone who struggled with pornography. It's a death sentence. I love what C.S. Lewis says in his book, The Weight of Glory. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises and the struggling nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Another massive problem in our culture is that we work hard to measure or quantify happiness. Why? Because then we can compare ourselves with other people. At least I'm not as bad off as they are. At least I've got it better than them. But folks, listen carefully. The bottom line is this joy-happiness conflagration is a spiritual issue. The Bible tells us that our hearts are dark. And given a choice, the human heart will always bent towards sin. And the angel said, instead, I bring you news that's going to cause you great joy when it's actually joy that we're searching for. And again, joy is not a feeling. Very common word in the Bible, 59 times, closely akin to charis, which means great, eucharistia, which means thankfulness, autarkia, which means contentment. And here's an utter mystery. If you seek joy, you will never find it. Joy is not something we attain. Joy comes for those who seek God. Psalm 37, 4 says this, Take delight in the Lord and He'll give you the desires of your heart. Isaiah 35, those who've been ransomed by the Lord will return. They'll enter Jerusalem singing crowned with everlasting joy. Sorrow and mourning will disappear and they'll be filled with joy and gladness. Jesus himself said in Mark, Matthew chapter 6, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all this stuff, all the things, everything you're looking for will be added as well. The fact is you were created by God for connection. Hear me carefully. Every human being on this planet is a workmanship of God created for connection with Him. And there is deep, satisfying joy that comes as a byproduct of that connection. And I'm here to tell you this joy, not happiness, that will fulfill you, will satisfy you. Number four, joy is important because it is renewed and sustained through thanksgiving. 
I love reading Paul's letters at the beginning. Now keep in mind that Paul traveled throughout the Gentile world sharing the gospel and raising up churches. And when he left, he wrote these congregations that are now friends of his. He wrote them letters. And virtually every letter that Paul writes to one of these churches begins with a greeting in the same way. If you look at Romans, if you look at Corinthians and Ephesians and Colossians and Thessalonians, Paul always says, I'm so thankful for you. This is Philippians chapter 1. Let me show you this one, verse 3. I thank my God every time I remember you and all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. Excuse me, from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Interesting. Paul connects work with joy. Did you see that? And I get it. I realize that I have a very different perspective than all of you because I work all day, every day at the church. My life kind of revolves around Covenant Life Assembly. So can you imagine the great joy that I receive when you talk about partnership with what God has called us to do together? A couple things happened this last week. I was talking to Karen last Sunday on the way out, and she wants to get involved in all the holiday stuff. And I said, I beg your pardon? And she said, you ran through it so fast, I couldn't keep up. And I said, you mean you want to get involved? What? This is so great. So I hooked Karen up with the ladies that are doing the ladies' banquet. I thought it was so cool. I was afraid we would not get the angel tree together because, you know, my wife had surgery, so she got the tags. And I came in Sunday morning, and I thought, well, I guess we'll just hand out the tags. And I saw that the tree was up. And I found out that Carl and Jean had broken in and set up the angel tree. And I was so grateful. This last week, I was able to connect with Roy and his boys. They had, had some needs and stuff. And you, this fellowship, were able to meet their needs. And I was the agent of that. It was so cool. And, and then, like, this how last week, Jean has been shopping. I need the credit card back, by the way. She's been shopping for the ladies' banquet. And what's cool about that to me is that Jean is so excited. I thought, these are my partners in the work of the gospel. It's the greatest thing in the world. You know, we talk a lot about fellowship. In that New Testament church in the book of Acts, the Greek word is koinonia. And that's much deeper than fellowship. It's actually a partnership together in fellowship. And that's what Paul's saying when he says, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. And and the church, I'm not talking about just our church, but the idea, the concept of church is such an amazing gift. Every Thanksgiving, I find myself overwhelmed with gratitude for two things. Number one is grace. I still cannot believe that Jesus loved me. That's stunning to me. And then secondly, the connections that I have in my life with my family and my friends and you my church family, I, I'm just so grateful to God. And this, this thankfulness is overflowing with joy like a fountain in my life. And the fifth thing I want you to see from the Bible is that joy is available now. Let me just say, if you're waiting for something to happen someday for you to start living in joy, you're doing it wrong. If you think that that if I just, when I just get through this season, once I get this promotion or, or once I get this degree or once I get married or some of you, once I get out of this marriage, then I'll have joy. You're doing it wrong. Joy is available now. It has nothing, 
say nothing. It has nothing to do with our circumstances. You know, we, we romanticize the Christmas story because of Christmas cards and the paintings and the songs. We have this real pretty, and even right there, you know, Joseph and Mary, you know, he's leading a donkey. There's no donkey in the Christmas story. Where did we get that? But we romanticize the nativity. But I want you to understand that Joseph and Mary traveled probably a week from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Mary's nine months pregnant. Now, I've never been pregnant. I've been really fat, but I've never been nine months pregnant. I've heard it's tough. When they finally get to Bethlehem, there's no hotel rooms. There's no beds. They found a place to, to kind of get comfortable in a stable, a cave where the animals are staying. And then talk about natural childbirth. Not only did Mary had no epidural, she had no help, no midwife, nobody. It was just Joseph and Mary. And then finally, having gone through this ordeal, who shows up with the first word but stinky shepherds? And I mean, did you, did you read the text? The Bible says they're living out in the fields. How do you think they smelled? Did they brush their teeth? And they showed up. We've got great news. Do you, does anybody think for just a minute that Joseph and Mary felt like saying, Joy to the world, the Lord. No. They were miserable. But that baby that was born that night grew up to say this in John chapter 16. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy. That a child is born into the world. So with you. Now is your time of grief, but I'll see you again and you'll rejoice and no one will take away your joy. Listen, when we get to heaven, it's going to be so good. It's going to be amazing. But please hear me say, joy is available now. Now. Close with this. It's so great to have my mom. She flies out next Saturday. She lives in California, so we don't see her often enough. She was at Roger's house this week. I hope he didn't ruin her because she's coming to my house this week. But we spent a couple of days and, and we went on Google Earth and we were looking back over some of the places we lived when I was a little kid and, and you know what the world looks like now compared to then. And it got me started thinking. My dad was a framing carpenter, so we moved a lot when we were kids. I went to lots of different schools. I went to two different schools in first grade. But that was never a problem for me. I think some kids are traumatized, and I look forward to the adventure. Also, I'm pretty sure that we didn't have a whole lot of money, but I never knew any of that. I had the most blissful, amazing childhood you could possibly imagine. I can't remember all the moving and, and lack of money and all that kind of stuff. I can't remember one single second of disappointment or anxiety because of my childhood. You know why? Because my dad was there. And my mom was there. And I was completely reassured because my dad convinced me that he would meet my needs. Here's my problem. Here's what I'm trying to say. This journey that we've chosen to walk on together, this deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Jesus journey is going to be tough at times. There's going to be parts of this journey that are miserable. 
Now, it's going to have an amazing ending, and the ending's going to be all worth it. But today, we struggle. But the promise of Christmas is this. There is joy in the journey. There's hope in the process. So while we're here on earth, while we're on our way to heaven, why would we ever grasp at happiness that's fleeting and temporary and can't scratch that itch anyway? What we want is joy. And joy is the one thing that Jesus provides in the Christmas story. This deep, satisfying, fulfilling joy that comes from knowing Jesus and the persistent reassurance that our Father is present. Now that is why we celebrate. Worship team, come back with me, will you please? Jesus, I pray this morning for people that are living in darkness. There are people that even in the church, they're living in a world pre-Jesus, before the incarnation, before the light came. And even though they have a choice and an opportunity to walk with you and live with you and have you present with them, walking in the light, they're stuck in darkness. And I pray in Jesus' name right now that they would find the hope and the joy that comes from a relationship with the Father.